when the pizza comes, uh, Kevin will let us know, and he's just going to set it up at the back. And this is going to be very informal, so feel free to go grab a slice, come back and sit down. Um, and uh, like I said, uh, I'm going to do some teaching at the beginning, and then we'll do Q&A for about the second half. Okay? Any questions about the format? How are we doing this? Okay, so you do need your Bibles for this, but this is not exclusively going to be based in the Bible, um, because we're going to be talking about a lot of scientific issues. Um, And again, I want to say the same thing that I said in the sermon, that unity does not mean uniformity. Okay, We can be united around following Jesus, even if we disagree over some of the details of following Jesus. Guys, why don't we, can we turn that down later? Is that okay? Uh, yeah. If you got to leave it, I'll turn it down for you. Okay. Um, so, um, what, I, what I hope we walk away from this in an hour, besides having full bellies from the pizza, is that I hope that we have grappled a little bit more with a difficult issue. Maybe you've made up your mind. Maybe you haven't. I'm not... I'm fine if you haven't made up your mind. Uh, But what I want us to do is to honestly grapple with a difficult issue and to do so in a spirit of love and walking with one another and realizing at the end of this, you may have a different perspective than I do, and I can live with that. So long as you're willing to grapple with the word of God and then bring science into the equation, I can live with that. Okay? So um, I want to talk here about the issue of origins want to talk about the integration of faith and science. So here's the deal. In the modern world, in the modern era, one of the most um, unassailable sort of bastions of truth is science. Science cannot be questioned. Science can never be challenged because we live in a scientific culture. We live in a scientific era. So there was this thing a while back in history called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment led to understandings about the way that truth works and the way that things happen. And so people emerged from the Enlightenment and they were so confident that they could know everything. And that they could prove everything. And that there would be scientific laws that would relegate God to the ash heap of history. Because you see, in the old days, people believed in miracles. In the new days, people believe in science. There's no need for the miraculous anymore when you can explain it all with Einstein's theories of general relativity. Now, I'm not against Einstein's theories. That's not my point. But the point is that we live in an era, we live in a culture, we live in a world in which there is no longer any need for God because there is no longer any need for God because science explains everything. Hey, buddy. So... Uh, what I want us to critique today, what I want us to push back on, is something called scientism. Anybody heard of scientism? Ish, kind of. So scientism is the idea that we... Malia. Malia. Can we sit down? Thanks, honey. Scientism is the idea that we are automatically going to believe whatever science teaches, whatever a scientist tells us. It is automatically the, tr- the truth. 
Now, if you're a Christian, that's a problem. Because scientists are, are they people or are they God? People, okay? Can people be flawed and wrong? Have you ever been flawed or wrong? Um, so the idea here is that what we want to do is to bring everything about life including our ideas of science, including our ideas of evolution, including our ideas of origins, through this filter of God's word, and say, we are not going to embrace scientism, but we're going to seek to embrace true science as it is found and rooted in scripture. Now, the Bible doesn't answer every scientific question. In fact, it probably doesn't answer most scientific questions. Uh, I know several of you work in fields that are either directly science or related to science. So whether you're a computer programmer or whether you're dealing with blood uh, at Columbia, like th those are both scientific fields. And you're like, well, the Bible doesn't give me any like rules for handling blood or programming computers because the Bible is not a science textbook. That's absolutely true. The Bible never sets out to solve all of those scientific issues for us. But what the Bible does do is it presents the true story of the world. And then it allows that story to filter and to shape everything about our own individual stories. And then our collective story is the people of God. So instead of embracing scientism, we want to embrace the creator and ask him to show us what is true. Do you mind if we, can we do that afterwards? Yeah, totally. Just tell him to come on out. Um, okay, so here's my first point. I don't know, can we go to the next slide? So, Here's what I want us, one thing that I want us to walk away from this. You can be a Christian and still believe in science. You can be a Christian and still believe in science. Because see, what's happened is there's this dichotomy that has been presented that you either believe in science or you believe in God. Anybody heard of uh, Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins is one of what's called the, the four horsemen of the new apocalypse. He's one of the new atheists. Uh, there's four of them. That's why they're called the four horsemen. But uh, Richard Dawkins has written a number of books uh, defending atheism and defending evolution. Uh, he says that the, the great thing about Charles Darwin is that Charles Darwin made it intellectually fulfilling to be an atheist. Because basically, there were people who wanted to be an atheist, uh, but they couldn't intellectually and, and scientifically find any reason to be atheists. But then Charles Darwin came along, and he changed the rules of the game so that now they're able to be atheists and feel good about themselves while doing it. But because of that dichotomy that has emerged, because of Charles Darwin's uh, thinking, because of his influence upon us, we've kind of reached this conclusion in American culture that you either believe in God or you believe in science. So that goes back to that, that tension that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, that a lot of Christians are just like, well... I mean, yeah, I want to believe in God, and I want to believe in Adam and Eve, and, and, but, I, I, you know, I have science classes, and I work in the science field, or, or you know, I like Bill Nye's PBS show. And, like, you, you struggle with trying to figure out how to put it together. So here's the basic first idea that I want to make is that you can be a Christian and still believe in science. Okay? I'm going to show you pictures of a number of different individuals, uh, many of them with local connections who are bona fide scientists who embrace a creationist perspective on science. The first one is Raymond Damadian. Uh, he got his MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and he's the inventor of the MRI. 
Anybody here ever been in an MRI? Okay. So if you have ever been in an MRI, you are the recipient of some great skill from a scientist who believed that the earth is only about 6,000 years old and that God was the creator and that evolution had nothing to do with it. Or there's this guy, uh, Felix Konati Ahulu, got his MD from London University, and he wrote like a 650-page textbook on sickle cell anemia. He's considered one of the world's leading experts on sickle cell anemia. He's a creation scientist who rejects all forms of evolution. So if you have sickle cell anemia, as our brother Kareem does, or as many others do, you're going to know about this guy. You're going to know about his, his influence upon how people try to treat this condition. He did not believe that his creationism, his belief in God as creator, was incompatible with his embrace of science. Or there's this woman, Georgia Purdom. She got a PhD in molecular genetics from Ohio State University. Now, I'm not even sure I know what molecular genetics is, but she's a really smart person um, who has written a number of things about uh, God and creation and science. People like her, they, they do creation research, but they're also doing scientific research. They're not necessarily tied to the church or tied to writing about Genesis or anything like that. They are recognized authorities and experts in their fields. And they write papers and they write books about like random obscure topics that none of us would ever be able to understand. And they also just happen to believe that Jesus is the creator and that science is not incompatible with Christianity. Or there's this, this guy named John Baumgartner who has a PhD in geophysics and space physics from UCLA. UCLA is a pretty prominent school in California. And he basically invented or was one of the inventors of the whole plate tectonics uh, model of understanding the Earth's crust. So you might have heard on TV, uh, if you're watching a PBS documentary or maybe in school, the idea of the Earth's crust and how the crust, there's this continental drift and things shift. Well, he's, he's one of the guys that invented that concept and invented that idea. Interestingly... As part of his understanding of that idea, he thinks that the big way when this was first manifested was during Noah's flood. Because he's a Christian. So he's taking Genesis 1 through 11 at face value, accepting it as history because Jesus did. And so then he's reasoning and, and trying to grapple with, with what he sees from science and what he sees from plate tectonics and what he sees from, from volcanic activity on the surface of the sea, on the, on the ocean floor. What he's doing is he's trying to integrate what he sees in the world with what he sees from Scripture. You might disagree with his interpretations, but he's trying to grapple with God's word, viewing it as the authority, and then integrating science in rather than having science as the authority and trying to integrate the Bible in. There's a huge difference. Last guy I want to point out, <clears throat> his name is Russell Humphreys. He looks a little bit like a mad scientist. Uh, he has a PhD in physics from LSU, Louisiana State University. He's written books on white holes. Has anybody heard of white holes? I didn't even know white holes were a thing until like 10 years ago, and I read his book, and I didn't understand half of it. Um, but 
But um, white holes are different than black holes, but apparently it's like a real thing. Um, and it's heavily built upon Einstein's theories of general relativity, which I'm not a math guy. I'm not a science guy, okay? So as I was reading about Einstein's theories of relativity, I was a little lost. But you've got this guy who has worked for some, some pretty prestigious organizations doing high-level scientific research, writing books about how white hole theory proves genesis. Now, as a non-scientist, I'm not really equipped to know what in the world he's talking about. I'm not citing that to say that that's the proper explanation. It could be. Maybe it's not. Maybe he's wrong. But what I am trying to prove, what I am trying to demonstrate in this first part of the talk is that you can be a real scientist. You can be a person who embraces real science and still be a Christian. But you can also be an unbeliever, someone who is not convinced of the claims of Christianity and still question aspects of evolution. For instance, there's this guy, Thomas Nagel. So Thomas Nagel is a, a distinguished professor of philosophy and law at NYU. Now, if you haven't noticed, NYU is not exactly a bastion of Christianity. And he's not a Christian either. Okay, I'm not going to put words into his mouth. But he struggles to embrace certain aspects of evolution, and he's taken a lot of flack for it. Or there's this guy, Jerry Fodor. He's a professor of philosophy and cognitive science at a pretty impressive place, MIT in Boston, City University of New York, and Rutgers University. Again, he's not a Christian. He does not believe in God, but he has some struggles and some doubts and some question marks about the prevailing scientific theories about the origin of the universe. So what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say that you can be a Christian and still embrace science. They are not incompatible. And you can be a non-Christian and still end up rejecting many forms of evolution because the evidence you feel doesn't take you there. But as I'm always trying to do, I want to filter it back to the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? So I want to do it in terms of three topics. What does the Bible say? Uh, then we'll look at some scientific evidence, and then we'll spend about 20 minutes uh, if you have questions. Okay. By the way, the pizza's here, so feel free to step back, grab your slice, come, come on back up. Okay. What does the Bible say about adaptation and speciation? Now, I have articles. I have three different articles. Um, one is called, Do Darwin's Finches Prove Evolution? One is called, Darwin's Eden, about the Galapagos Islands. And one is called, Evidence for a Young World. This is an eight-page article that has like 14 different points. Um, when Charles Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands, he uh, made some scientific discoveries that revolutionized the world. And so out of, uh, out of his studies there, Charles Darwin eventually ended up writing a book called The Origin of Species. Interestingly, the, the racist title of the book is usually never, never uh, included because the, the rest of the title of the book is something like uh, The Preservation of the Favored Species Against the, the Non-Favored Species. Uh, and a lot of Charles Darwin's ideas were used to justify eugenics, slavery, uh, the Hitler's final solution, things like that. But what Charles Darwin did when he was at the Galapagos Islands was he discovered, hey, honey, high five. Yeah, I want to, I want to 
ask mommy if I can get okay. some pizza. Yes, you can have a slice of pizza. But can you just stay with, um, can you stay with Rachel? Oh, sure. Thanks. Um, so, let's see, where was I? Okay, adaptation and speciation. <laughs> so what Charles Darwin did when he was at the Galapagos Islands is he saw these birds, these finches. They're called, to this day, they're called Darwin's finches. And what he discovered was he thought that he was, he was discovering that there was adaptation and speciation going on here. Now, does anybody know what I mean when I say adaptation and speciation? Like four of you. Okay, great. Um, so here's the deal. Basically, what happens is, uh, think about it in terms of dogs. How many of you like dogs? I know Ashley likes dogs. She just brought her dog to town. Woo! Um, but here's the deal. We know there's a lot of different kinds of dogs, right? How many different kinds of dogs are there? How, is it two? Hundreds, thousands. Uh, there's poodles, and there's like wolf dogs, and there's, what kind of dog is yours? What? Corgi. Okay. There's terriers. Uh, there's all different kinds. Now, what Charles Darwin said is, okay, adaptation is this. When, when two dogs get together and they begin to interbreed and then their kids get together and they, they keep interbreeding, eventually you are going to produce a new species of dog, which is going to be totally different. And it's true, right? Like you can see it in rabbits, like in the Ar Arctic. Why in the Arctic are all the rabbits with a white fur? Why are there no rabbits with black fur in the Arctic? None of them have survived. And because none of them have survived, all of those genes got eliminated. So the only, only rabbits who keep populating are the ones with the genetic disposition to have white fur. Charles Darwin understood this. Charles Darwin grasped this in a way that many before him had not grasped it. Okay? So I want to give credit where credit is due. I'm not a Darwin fan. But he did, he did stumble upon something here, and he did understand it in a better way that a lot of people had not before. So what he's understanding, what he's connecting with, is this idea that when he gets to the island, when he sees these finches, when he sees these birds, when he sees there were these famous tortoises on the island, and he's like, okay, he's trying to piece it together, and it seemed like the Galapagos Islands were untouched. There was just this beautiful paradise. In fact, one of the articles, by the way, I've got all these articles up here for you to grab at the end, uh, that, uh, that the, one of the articles is called Darwin's Eden. Because this, this place was so unspoiled, so, so unspotted. It was just like, man, this is paradise. This is Eden. And he sees this, and he sees the animals, and he just sees the absolute beauty of this. And he begins to try to figure it out. He's trying to piece it together scientifically to explain it. I'm not knocking him for that. That was, a, that was what you or I would probably do, especially if we were a scientist. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't care about it if you're not a scientist, but he was. So what he says is, all right, so we've got these birds. And in particular, he was talking about the length of their beaks, which is pretty significant. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but the articles that I have there, they talk about it a lot more, okay? The length of their beaks. So he's like, okay, so, so these birds over here, they have longer beaks, and therefore they're able to survive better. Because the, the longer beak, they're able to grab the seed that's, that's stuck behind the rock. And the ones with the shorter beaks, they're not able to grab the seed that's stuck behind the rock, so the shorter, shorter beak... Birds, they die off. 
Okay? And so he's reasoning through it like this. And so he's taking lots of notes. He's on the HMS Beagle. That's the name of the ship. And, and he's, he's just making these discoveries. And so he's saying, all right, I see that when you have geographical limitations, you have like an island environment like this, that you've got these animals, they're grouped together, they're only breeding with one another exclusively, and then their kids are breeding with one another, and their grandkids are breeding with one another. And what you're doing is you're seeing an elimination of certain genes and, and the elevation of other genes. And the ones that are elevated are the ones that would be more desirable in that particular environment. Because the short-beaked birds don't survive. They just don't. And the long-beaked birds, they survive. So what Darwin said is, he says, I see them. It's like there's this built-in mechanism that, that the, the uh, what did he call it? The, it's the survival of the fittest, right? So the more fit birds, they survive. The less fit birds, they die. That was Darwin's understanding. And so what he said is not only is there adaptation here, but there's something called speciation. A new species of birds emerges. So what does the Bible say about adaptation and speciation? And this is very, very, very important. Okay? So I want us to go to the Bible. I do not have the verses on the screen. Uh, but if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to look at Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have the Bible, that's cool. I will read it to you. Reading from the New English Translation, Genesis 1, verse 20. God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. God created the great sea creatures and every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. God said, let the land produce creatures according to their kinds, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. It was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the cattle according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So, we've covered these verses earlier on in our series, but what relevance do they have to the idea of adaptation and speciation? God creates on day five of the creation week, he creates birds and he creates fish. Now, it would be more than that. I mean, it would be like whales and sharks and everything that's in the sea and everything that's flying through the air. Okay? God creates the winged creatures and, the, and the, the aquatic animals on day five. And he tells them to reproduce how? What does he say? Reproduce after what? After their kind. So fish, when they get together, are going to have more fish. Birds, when they get together, are going to have more now, there's really nothing controversial about that, right? Like, we all know that's how it happens. And then God gets to Adam and Eve, right? He creates in verse 26, God says, I'm going to make mankind after my kind, after my likeness, and in my image. I'm going to make them to be like me, and then they will reproduce after their kind. So 
what God does is he sets up the order of how things are supposed to flow out for the next however long, I don't know how long history is going to last, but however long, this is how it's going to be. Birds are going to have birds, fish are going to have fish. On day six, he repeats the same image. Cows are going to have cows, dinosaurs are going to have dinosaurs. People are going to have people. That's the way it works. We reproduce after our kind. So here's what happens. Guys like Richard Dawkins, the evolutionist that I mentioned earlier, um, he wrote a book called The Greatest Show on Earth, which attempts to, to set out the scientific case for evolution. I quit reading after three chapters because I was so unimpressed with his scholarship. Um, basically, his argument over and over again for three chapters was like this. He says, so we all know that there are a lot of different kinds of dogs. And, and if you have two different kinds of dogs, you can end up with poodles over here after many generations and wolf dogs over here and, and chihuahuas over here. You can have hundreds of different kinds of dogs. Therefore, the Bible's not true. I don't know if Richard Dawkins has ever read the literature put out by creation scientists or Bible scholars, but there is not any single creation scientist or Bible scholar who believes that the Bible says that that could not have happened. In fact, that's exactly what we would believe from this idea that God says that they would be created after their kind. So what is the kind? Well, I believe that when God created dogs on day six, there was a male and a female dog, and they had all of the genetic potential to over time turn into chihuahuas and huskies and terriers and poodles and every other kind of dog you can imagine. How did that happen? Well, over time, they separated out. That's what Darwin discovered on the Galapagos Islands. He discovered that with geographical limitations, when there's a mountain or a river in your way, and so the dogs don't have anywhere to go and they just keep on interbreeding, that, that changes occur over time. As gen, gen, it's basic genetics. I'm sure that the biologists here, like Kevin, could explain this better than I could, but it's just biology 101. It's just genetics, okay? That's exactly what Christians would expect when you read Genesis 1. God said they're going to reproduce after their kind. So God makes dogs, and he's like, go reproduce after your kind. So there were a lot of dogs that have come over hundreds or thousands, however long we've been here. A lot of dogs that have emerged over that period of time. Some people call that evolution. If that's what you want to call evolution, then fine. I'm all for evolution. Um, but that's not what most people mean when they say evolution. And what Richard Dawkins does in his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, is he sets up this great bait and switch. Um, he sets up this great straw man, and then he knocks it over so well. And he's like, see, 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 those dumb Christians, they don't know what they're talking about. But basically what he says is, so we know that dogs can turn into poodles and chihuahuas. The Bible says otherwise, therefore the Bible's wrong. Um, there is no verse that says that Dogs aren't going to have poodles and aren't going to have chihuahuas. That's exactly what I would expect after reading Genesis. What I would not expect, though, is for dogs to have cats and for birds to have people, which Richard Dawkins knows is the second strand of the theory of evolution. If we're going to talk about simply adaptation and speciation, I would say that Christians can agree with that. In fact, Christians probably should agree with that idea of Darwin's from the Galapagos Islands. It's in the Bible. 
not directly stated, but I think when we, when we read between the lines, I think we can see that it is there and the implications of that are there. But the second part of Darwin's idea was this idea of common descent. So what does the Bible say about common descent? Does anybody know what I mean when I use the term common descent? A couple of you? All right, so here's the idea. Basically, we all go back to the same thing. So the dog and the cat and the horse and the zebra and the dinosaur and the plant and the mountain and the monkey and you. We all go back to the same thing. We've emerged out of, in particular, the, the living, the living things. The horse, the monkey, you. We all have a common ancestor. So way back, billions of years ago or whenever it was in the, uh, in the theory, there was this common ancestor, some amoeba or some, some prehistoric thing, blob of protoplasm. And that is what eventually, over billions of years, turned into a lot of different things. In fact, when you look at a, at a picture of the evolutionary tree, which is standard in science textbooks, you see that there's some sort of like prehistoric thing, whatever it is, and then you see over here you've got you know, dinosaurs, and over here you've got birds, and over here you've got horses, and over here you've got monkeys, and then you've got people that came from the monkeys. And so it, but it, what it is showing is that we all have the same common descent, which is what Darwin's second book was about. Okay? So, what does the Bible say about the idea of common descent? I've said that with the first idea, the idea of adaptation and speciation, that the Bible would be okay with that. In fact, that's what the Bible seems to teach. It's exactly what we'd expect from the Word of God. But on this idea of common descent, we go back to the same verses that we just read. Day five, do the, do the birds that God makes and the fish in the sea, do they come from a common ancestor? Or do they just come from an act of creation by an all-powerful God? It's the latter. God creates birds and God creates fish. They don't have a common ancestor. What about man? And this is really where the, where the rubber hits the road here. Does humanity have a common ancestor with animals? Well, let's go back to verse 26, Genesis 1. After God makes everything else, then he says, Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move on the earth. Genesis 2, the passage that Woodley preached on a few weeks ago, records, it goes into greater detail how God breathes life. God puts a soul in Adam. And so Adam is unique. He is special. He and Eve are marked out from the rest of the world. God speaks everything else into existence, and then God scoops into the dirt and makes Adam, and then he makes Eve out of her side. Humanity doesn't have a common descent with all of the animals and with all other forms of life. Humanity is made distinctly and uniquely in the image of God. So if I'm confronted with claims from science that say, on the one hand, you should believe in adaptation and speciation. Sometimes this is called microevolution. It's not always called that, but sometimes that's called microevolution. I totally believe in that, okay? That's what you'd expect with a careful reading of Genesis 1 and 2. The other part of the idea of evolution, and this is where Richard Dawkins does the, I think, the deceitful bait and switch, the, the trick here. He's like, okay, so evolution is true because we know that there are poodles and chihuahuas. Therefore, the Bible is to be thrown out the window. 
But Dawkins knows better than that. He knows not only is evolution, the idea of evolution, there's microevolution, which is this adaptation and speciation, this basic genetics 101, but there is more than that, there is this idea of common descent. It can be articulated different ways. Not everybody explains it the same way that Darwin explained it. Like some of his theories are already out of date and not all evolutionists still believe the same things that Charles Darwin did. But a crucial part of his theory that is still accepted as, as gospel truth is the idea of common descent. That somewhere back in the day, it went from goo to you. All you need is billions of years to make it happen. So what does the Bible say about common descent? It says there is no such thing as common descent. Now, if you're struggling with that, you're like, well, but there's something in science that I feel like says otherwise. I would say I, I sympathize with your struggle, but my starting point has to be Jesus. My starting point has to be the Bible. So what do we do when we're struggling with that? I want to try to circle back and answer that question uh, toward the end. All right. Um, another question that I want to try to answer here before we take some questions. What does the Bible say about the age of the earth? So um, how many of you have heard that the earth is like 6.5 billion years old? How many of you heard some Christians saying, no, actually it's like 10,000 years old? Okay, and, uh, and maybe many of you are like, I have no idea what to believe. Like, I heard this preacher, I really respected him, and he said it was like 6,000 years old, but, but Bill Nye says 6.5 billion years, so I don't know what to do. Um, does the Bible address the issue of the age of the earth? And I would say the short answer is it does not directly address the issue of the age of the earth in any single verse, okay? So if you're looking for a Bible verse that says, um, you know, Genesis 1-1, God made the heavens and the earth, in 4004 uh, BC, which there's actually a guy named Archbishop Usher from back in the day who says that the, the world was made in 4004 uh, BC. Um, I don't know how we can possibly know that, but but he, he was convinced. But there is no verse with a with a tag that says this is when it was made. So if you're looking for that level of specificity, you will never find it about the age of the earth. But I do think there are some clues. That lead me to conclude, that lead me to believe that the earth is young. How young? I don't know. Some people say 6,000 years. Some people say 10,000 years. Some people just say, well, I don't know, but it's definitely not 6 billion years. I don't know the total answer to that. And I want to approach it with a, with, um, a humility and, a, and a, um, a transparency that I, I don't have all of the answers on this. And I don't know everything that there is to know. But I think that when we read the Bible we look at some of these clues, we're going to arrive at a much younger universe than what is typically taught us in our science classes. Again, starting with the Bible and then going to science rather than the other way around. So first off is the genealogies. Now, I haven't preached on this yet, but when we get to Genesis chapter 5, we're going to read through some genealogies, which Luke repeats a lot of those genealogies in Luke's gospel, and he brings Jesus into them, and he shows how Jesus traces all the way back to Adam. Um, so in those genealogies, you can add up, uh, the ages of the people in the genealogies, right? It says that Adam lived this many years and then his son lived this many years and then his son lived this many years, right? And so you can add up all of those numbers, which would be very tedious to do. But when you add up all those numbers, you can discern that from the time of Adam to Abraham in Genesis 12, 
if there are no gaps in the genealogies, it's about a few thousand years. So the way that people who say that the earth is 6,000 years old, the way they get that number is they add up the numbers of the genealogies and they say from Adam to Abram, there's about 2,000 years. And then we know from the, the, the history gets a little bit more exact after that. We know from, from Abraham uh, to the time of Christ, it was another 2,000 years. And then we know it's been 2,000 years since Jesus. Well, uh, you got about 6,000 years. Um, and I am, I am, I'm sympathetic to that, and I, I think that the earth is pretty close to that, although I don't think that we can know that with certainty, you know that for sure. One reason is that I believe that there are some gaps in those genealogies in Genesis 5. So I don't think that every single person in Adam's line is recorded. But what we do know from the way that ancient Near Eastern gene genealogies were used is that the gaps that would have been in there would not have been sufficient to get to millions or billions of years. We're talking about a difference of thousands of years rather than millions of years. So, so if there are gaps in the Genesis 5 genealogy and, and the author of Genesis didn't feel like it was important to list every single individual between Adam and Noah, if, if that's what the writer of Genesis thought, then at best you're looking at 10 20, 25,000 years. You're not looking at 6 billion years. So that's one reason why, based on those ancient Near Eastern genealogies and the way that they were used in that culture, not the way they're used in our culture, leads me to believe that the earth is young, younger. Don't ask me for a birthday because I don't know that. Okay? Uh, then there's Jesus and the age of the earth. We referenced earlier the passage in Mark where Jesus talks about the creation of Adam and Eve. And he says, well, this is supposed to shape our ethic of marriage. Don't you know that at the beginning of the earth, at the beginning of the world, this is how it was? Now, seems to seems to indicate that Jesus thought that Adam and Eve were around the beginning of the earth. They were there at the beginning, not billions of years later, which is what modern evolutionary theory would teach that you know, the earth was around for billions of years. Man only showed up, what, um, millions of years ago? I'm not really, I don't remember exactly, but the, the earth has been around for billions of years, and then man showed up millions of years ago. But Jesus said at the beginning of the earth, at the beginning of the creation, Adam and Eve were there. Now, that makes sense when you read Genesis, and you're like, oh, they were made on the sixth day. That's the beginning of the earth. I mean, that makes sense. So day one, God did this. Day two, God did this. Day three, God did this. At the beginning of creation, God makes Adam and Eve. It's not billions of years later they evolved out of some primordial soup. But he creates them by a special act of creation on day six at the beginning of the creation. Um, one thing that uh, I would say also is the idea of the global flood. How many of you have heard the story of Noah and the flood? Okay, I'm going to preach on that in about a month. One of my goals with that is to try to um, help us strip away the fairy tale qualities of this story. Because here's, here's what, here's what we, we all have this image in our mind of what one writer calls bathtub arcs. And it's this, it's this cute, cuddly little story. And we, we, see, we see the elephants and the giraffes and they're all, they're all squished in there and they're all so happy. And, and it's great. It's just this awesome story. Like when you read the Bible's version of the story, there's no precious moments fairy tale quality to it. The earth is getting ripped apart. 
Like when you, when you dig into, into, into what is happening there and you study the Hebrew words that are employed, most likely the, the crust of the earth is, is, is going through a global cataclysm. There are volcanoes and there are tsunamis and there are tidal waves. There are earthquakes. This is a global catastrophe unlike anything the world has ever seen. We've never seen anything like it since. So what a lot of creation scientists believe is that the flood of Genesis is a, is, a, um, is a fundamental shift that helps us to understand and make sense of the scientific data. So for instance, helps us understand why there are marine fossils on the tops of mountains. Like really, how did, how did the fish die at the top of mountains? Well, it makes sense if you accept what Genesis 9 says, that there was a global flood that covered the tallest mountains on the earth. Um, because of the flood, many scientists who are Christians would say that the flood has, has uh, helps us to understand and account for a lot of the scientific data which is argued over regarding the age of the earth. Things like the Grand Canyon um, and some of that sort of thing. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about that, but we can talk about it more if that's what you want to talk about. Okay? So... Um, I'm going to just say a couple of more things, and I'm going to let you ask questions, okay? So I believe that when you look at the world, the scientific data to argue for a creator, to argue for creation, is overwhelming and it is staggering. started this article today on uh, blood clotting. Did you know that when your blood clots, there's a 16-step procedure that occurs to make sure that you don't die? Now, I don't know if it's all linear or if some of the steps happen at the same time. I don't know. I'm not a blood clotting expert. But I do know that when I gash my arm, my blood just starts clotting. And there's this 16-step procedure that has been masterfully designed to save my life. It's the idea of intelligent design. That there is someone, that there is something that is standing behind the universe that has given life and meaning and purpose to it. If humans evolved over millions of years and it requires 16 different steps to keep your blood from clotting, what happened in the, the several million years in the meantime before those 16 steps had all evolved? If all 16 of them are required for survival and you've only got 14, how are you going to survive the next two million years while those last two steps evolve? See, this is, this is what intelligent design theorists call the problem of irreducible complexity. That once you boil everything down to its most simple and basic feature, that is the, the best explanation for the world. Because it, it couldn't have evolved from that point on without still surviving. I also think of beauty. There's a lot about the world that I can't explain and that I don't understand. But even in spite of the curse of Genesis 3, I look at the world and I see beauty. And I think Christians ought to be able to appreciate beauty better than anybody else. Even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of seeing that the world has become ugly because of sin, the beauty of God is still shining through his original creation. The psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his handiwork. When I look at creation, I look at beauty. 
And I have to explain, well, how did beauty originate? You can argue about different ways that beauty has originated. I think the most plausible explanation is that there is a creator. There is a God. There is someone who has breathed purpose and life and, yes, beauty into this world. All right, uh, let's see. We've got about 20 minutes left. So what I'd like to do um, is give you a chance to ask questions. Um, I'm not going to front. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Bible guy, not a science guy. So if you ask me a science question that I don't know the answer to, I will say I don't know the answer, but um, I'll go look it up. Uh, because a lot of these people that I began the talk with, these creation scientists, these are folks who've got their PhDs in science and they're well-respected in their field, even by non-Christian scientists. And they've written extensively on this kind of stuff. And I can go get the answers for you. I can find it out. But if I don't know, I'm not going to like make something up. Okay? I'll just say, I've got to figure it out. Um, but are there any questions about the relationship of science and faith or creation evolution? What I'm going to do, uh, if you ask a question, you probably won't be heard, so I'm going to repeat it. Um, just so that um, the people who listen to this on the podcast um, will be able to know what the question was. Okay? Any questions? Sure. All right. Hello, everyone. It's Infrared from the Q&A at Owner Energy. But I have a quick favor to ask. Uh, if you guys could just take care of the trash and diesel all that stuff. Um, we want to be respectful of Mount Joy Church. We went to Christian Zone. Sometimes there are reports of trash that's left behind. So it's not like we're wearing a show. It's all taken Thanks. Would you mind bringing it up? I'm like starving. Thanks. Um, okay. Any questions? Uh, and I'm not gonna judge you. No, nobody's gonna judge you if if you're struggling with this. If you totally disagree with me. That's cool. I'm not gonna lose any sleep over it. Any questions? Damn. Hold on. Okay. So, it, it, uh, in Morocco, you said that there was a skull that was dated to 300,000 years old? Yeah, the oldest public dating skull down Uh-huh. Okay. So, you want to know how we grapple with carbon dating? Yes. So, uh, I'm not an expert on carbon dating. Um, I have read a number of articles uh, where scientists have talked about the circular reasoning that goes into carbon dating. Um, I'm not saying it's all circular, but some of it is circular reasoning. What happens is a lot of times scientists um, have developed an elaborate theory, and so they say these rocks are, you know, a million years old. And the way that we know it's a million years old is because we found this fossil in the rocks. And they say, well, how old is, how do you know how old the rock, the, the fossil is? Well, because it's in rocks that are a million years old. And so it's a big circular argument. I'm not saying that's particularly what they're doing in this case. Could be. Um, uh, I'm also not questioning the uh, the integrity or the authenticity of of the scientists making those sorts of claims. I'm sure they believe it, um, but um, you know I, I don't totally know how we reconcile carbon-14 dating. But I do know that I can get you more on that. There's a book called uh, Rate 
uh, Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth. It's this massive two-volume set, um, and I think I've got one volume of it. Um, anyway, uh, I've not read it because it's science and it's over my head, but, but uh, people have grappled with that issue, creation scientists who have sought to say, I'm going to start with the Bible and then bring science in rather than the other way around. Um, and I think they've come up with some very good, very good conclusions, which maybe don't prove my case. Uh, and I'm not trying to argue that we can prove any of this, but that simply it is a plausible explanation. Uh, but specifically, I can try to get you more uh, on carbon-14. So we'll do Megan, and then was it Sean? Did you have a question? Okay, so Megan and then Sean. Okay. Yeah, I will, I'll try to repeat what she says. Yep. So I'll try to repeat that for, for those of you who might not have been able to hear. Uh, Megan was talking about how different science, scientists and different organizations, she was mention, mentioning Answers in Genesis, which is based in Kentucky, uh, that different organizations have done different tests and come up with radically different answers. Um, uh, there have been uh, studies, there's, there's different kinds of, there's radiocarbon, like decay dating, there's carbon-14, there's, there's radioisotopes, there's a number of different ways of dating. Uh, things and what what happens is that a number of tests have been done and they come up radically younger like not even done by like creationists with an axe to grind just just like well okay this says it's five million years old but we know this happened 30 years ago like when you look at Mount St. Helens so Mount St. Helens was a, a volcanic catastrophe in what Washington state was it Washington um, so uh, when you go and date those rocks, that was, I think, in the 1980s. When you date those rocks, it shows that they're hundreds of thousands of years old. Uh, the, but we know because we saw the volcano, the volcano erupt like 30 years ago. Um, so evolutionists struggle with that, and they're like, well, I mean, I don't know what to make of it. Um, it doesn't mean that creationists automatically have the right answer off the, you know, from the get-go. But what we're doing is we're, we're injecting some slivers of doubt into this edifice of scientism and showing that there is a, there is another plausible explanation. And maybe I don't have all of the answers. I can't explain every jot and tittle, but I can demonstrate that there are compelling and competing answers. Um, like a related issue of the age of the earth um, with dating, and then I'll go to Sean's question, is that, um, so dinosaurs. Anybody know how, how long ago dinosaurs lived according to modern evolutionary theory? 65 million years ago is, is kind of like when they're all like traced back to. Um, and, uh, but we consistently find some dinosaur bones that have soft tissue in them, that have blood cells in them. Now, I read this quote from this one evolutionist who's like, you know, I don't know how, how blood cells uh, survive 65 million years because we know they can't. Blood cells just don't survive 65 million years. Anybody who works with blood knows that. Um, I double-checked with Metheny before I, before I said this. I sent her this article. I was like, so there's this science article about blood and dinosaurs, and I don't, I'm not a scientist. So are they, are they pulling one over on me? And she's like, I don't, I don't know how I could survive that long because, you know, blood doesn't survive that long. Um, 
But so what the, what the evolutionist in the article said was they just said, well, this doesn't make sense because we know it can't survive that long. Um, so we've got to rethink everything. But what they do when they rethink everything is don't bring Jesus into it. Because what if the earth just isn't that old? What if instead of 65 million years old, what if it's only 100,000 years old? Now, I still don't know how blood cells survive for 100,000 years. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But the point is that there are all these alternative dating methods, and every single one of them has problems. They might have problems for us too, but they got problems for us all. So it, it doesn't definitively prove anything, in my opinion. Sean, uh, catch him. No, no, go for it. Okay, well, whichever one you want. two ways. First off, you're absolutely right that there is a verse, um, I forget if it's in First or Second Peter, but it was the Apostle Peter who said that one day is with the Lord is, a, is like a thousand years. Um, and uh, what, he's, what he's saying is that God is not bound by time like we are. Uh, and that long stretches of time to God seem like that because God is outside of time. I think we'd all agree that. Like, that's no problem. Uh, the problem is in trying, what some people try to do is to take that to go to Genesis 1. Where Genesis 1 says, on the first day, God made this. On the second day, God made this. On the third day, God made this. They say, well, each day is like a thousand years. So that could be a thousand years or a million years or a billion years. You really have to blow it up to get, to get the right scale of time. Day 1 could be a billion years. Day 2 could be a billion years. Day 3 could be a billion years. And you, you get like six billion years, uh, which would fit because we know, according to evolutionary theory, the world's like six and a half billion years old. Although they keep changing that, it keeps growing. So... Um, but the, the pro, there's two problems with that. One is that the Bible defines those days for us, I think, pretty clearly in Genesis 1. Not everybody's going to agree with me on that. There are some Bible scholars who would resonate exactly with what you just said and say, yeah, I, I believe that. Um, I don't believe that, uh, even though I respect that as a, as a possible view, um, because what should govern our understanding of a text is its context. That applies whether you're reading Romans or whether you're reading Genesis. And so, so the Bible says uh, there was morning and there was night. That was the first day. There was morning. There was night. That was the second day. There was morning. There was night. That was the third day. Um, to me, that just sounds like a day. Um, and I think that any, any um, ancient reader of the text, the first readers of the text, would have said morning, night, day. Morning, night, day. Um, so I think that the straightforward reading of Genesis defines its days for us. The second problem with trying to approach it from, from that framework is that if we get dinosaurs 
and all kinds of other stuff living millions or billions of years before Adam. Let's just, let's just say that each day is a billion years, right? And so by the time Adam and Eve arrive, there's like five billion years of cosmic history. During which, I guess all the dinosaurs died off, and there's been death and savagery and disease and horrific things. Um, and the way that we know that is because like, you can find like uh, uh, cancer cells in some of these fossils and things like this. You, see, you can see uh, fossilized one animal eating another as they become fossilized. You see death and savagery and disease and horror. But when you read Genesis 1, God says, day one, good. Day two, good. Day three, good. Four, five. And then at day six, he says, it's very good. Um, and what you see from Romans 5, uh, which I talked about earlier, is you see that Adam brings death into the world. So the Bible, the Bible understands that the world at the end of day six is perfect. It is beautiful, it is unspoiled, it is totally good. But if we are going to say that the first five days or each a billion years, in order to fit geologic history in with that, what we have to say is, well, there was death and dying and disease for five billions of years before Adam ever got there. So if Adam didn't cause the problem of death, then what did he really do? Uh, which really goes back to, to my argument in my sermon that Paul builds his entire theology of sin and of death upon a real Adam who really did live this way and do these things. Because a related issue is uh, some, some um, scientists think and some creation or some uh, Christian scientists have even bought into this idea that um, you can say that uh, not everybody alive is descended from Adam. And the way that this has turned really ugly and some really racist tendencies is uh, like in Australia. They've said, well, the, the natives of Australia, the Aborigine people, uh, they, they trace their roots differently. They're from this Homo sapien group, and they don't, they don't, they're, they're more earlier developed. So they're not necessarily the sons of Adam. Um, Romans teaches and 1 Corinthians teaches that Jesus came for the sons of Adam. So if there are people alive today who can trace their lineage back to someone other than Adam, then they are, first, they're not under the curse, so they should be living a perfect life, which we don't see anybody fitting that. And two, if they were in that boat, they don't need Jesus. So that would mean that there's people alive for whom Jesus did not come. Um, so I think there's a lot of problems. Like, um, I, I can see on the surface the attractiveness of saying, well, because... God said, you know, that God is outside of time and, and, you know, a long period of time is just like an instant for God. Um, I can see the attractiveness of that, but I don't, I don't go there because I don't think Genesis 1 defines the days that way. And I have to go to Genesis 1 to define the days. And then if I were to define the days that expansively, I've got major problems with my theology of sin, death, and ultimately salvation. Um, so... I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Sure. And then, did you have a question, JJ? So Sean and then JJ.
in and of itself is, is an evolution. Like there, people learn new things that kind of change. Right. So, yeah, that's a great, great question. So here's, here's what um, some Christians will try to do. They will say that they were um, soulless, soulless hominids is what they're called, which is, sounds like a weird and bizarre name, but soulless hominids who lived some time before Adam. And so they were like legitimately people, but they weren't made in the image of God. So for billions of years, there was this race of people roaming the earth um, who did not have a godlike capacity. Because that only happened on day six in the idea of like, well, this is like billions of years later. So at day six, God takes one of those soulless, God takes one of those soulless hominids. I'll just go here. God takes one of those soulless hominids and he breathes into him a soul and says, this one, there's like, you know, 30,000 of them on the earth, but I'm going to pick this man and this woman and I'm going to make them in my image. And so God does something new and different there. That's what some people say. Um, again, there are a lot of problems with that. One is, there's no verse in the Bible that um, indicates that there was any sort of people before Adam. Um, you, you really have to, to jump and to stretch to get there. Um, two is that it messes up your theology of sin and salvation because God says, or Paul said, under the inspiration of God, that death comes through Adam. All of these soulless hominids died. And I'm calling them soulless hominids. I don't actually believe that they were soulless hominids, but all of these people, that's what I think they were, they all died. If they died before Adam, then what's the problem in Genesis 3? God came to fix the problem as the last Adam to fix the problem caused by the first Adam. So I don't, I don't think, I think those were just people um, in some cases for maybe chimpanzees or monkeys in other cases. I don't believe that they were hybrids at all evolving. Um, the idea of common descent, which we talked about earlier, uh, is that we all have this common or origin, this common ancestry in the past. Uh, that that it's uh, molecules to man, evolution, goo to you, that kind of thing. Um, but Genesis is clear that there is a very sharp distinction. God makes the birds, God makes the fish, God makes the dinosaur, God makes everything, and then God makes man. And it's very different, it's very distinct, it's very unique. If I go down that road, I'm going to have a whole lot of trouble articulating a doctrine of sin and then a doctrine of salvation because I won't be able to articulate very well a doctrine of death. And death is the whole reason I need salvation because death is separation from God. And according to Paul, there was none of that before Adam. Um, so I would just question the scientific interpretations um, again, there are plenty of articles out there where we could we could talk about Neanderthal man or Piltdown man. 
Some of them are straight up hoaxes that have since been disproven. Um, others of them have not yet been disproven, not um, been grappled with. They're still trying to figure it out. There's argument, there's debate. Some of them are accepted as gospel truth. You can go to the Smithsonian and see, they'll say this is scientific fact. You know, Neanderthal man lived however many years ago. And, um, I don't believe it, and I think that when when um, when investigation continues, I think that something else will be proven to be true. Um, JJ, I, I'm going to come back to that again, Sean. But JJ. Um, but God has built in ahead of time 
this mechanism, this means that is going to benefit them and serve them well um, once Genesis 3 happens. Or maybe God just like said, okay, now this new world, I'm going to give new capabilities. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say either way, so I would, uh, I would not come down too strongly on either, either approach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are creation scientists who've written about that too. Um, I don't, I don't really have an opinion. Sure. One more, and then we'll then we'll toss it back to somebody else. Okay. Uh, who's next, Kevin? Okay. Curious about biology and that, but for me, I want to share the gospel with my friends, all this kind of stuff. And science evolution is often a distraction. You know, I can't believe that God exists because of evolution. So I think it's more of a, just like as a leaving here as the next step, like how can we engage our friends and coworkers when we get these kind of questions, right? Um, I don't know, I, I feel like not always I have all the answers that you can have shared, but do you have tips for yeah. what you do when you have these kind of conversations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, one thing that I don't want to do is for people to think that they have to have all of these answers. A few times already I've said, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I'll try to find out. Um, I remember sharing the gospel with, with somebody here in, here in Crown Heights, a guy that I developed a relationship with. And uh, he told me, he said, I want to believe in God, but I just can't because of science. And I believe in evolution. He said, hey, can we get together and talk about that? Um, and uh, he said, sure. So like the, the soonest we could get together was about two weeks from then, and so I did a lot of research. Um, I studied the Galapagos Islands where Darwin went and printed out articles about like the turtles on Galapagos and all this different stuff and came prepared and so I had a stack of material. We sat down, we sat down in this Jamaican restaurant and, and he goes, uh, hey, it's great to see you. And I was like, cool, good, good to see you. I was like, so I've got some articles for you. I said, well, you want something happen? Like, uh, and I had been praying like really hard for him for two weeks, knowing that we were going to have this meeting. And he said, something's happened in the last two weeks. Um, I believe in God now. I was like, well, do you need to talk about all this stuff? He's like, nah, we don't need to talk about it. I believe in God. Um, so I was like, sweet. Okay, well, let's just talk about Jesus. Um, because sometimes what, what we, we think is that, man, I've got to be an expert um, you know, if I'm sharing the gospel with, with someone who's, say, Mormon, I have to know all about Mormonism. Or if I'm sharing the gospel with, with um, somebody who's, you know, atheist, I have to know all the atheist arguments. Or, you know, you just know about Jesus, and you tell people about Jesus, and you love people. Um, so I would say what I learned in that encounter was the importance of having a relationship with him. He knew that I cared about him. I was part of his life. He was part of mine. And prayer. Like, I prayed hard for him. And saw that that God God reached him in the two week span when I was like studying when I didn't need to. So, sure. Somebody else? Let me see what time we got. Maybe a couple more questions. If you you have a question but you don't want to ask it in public, I understand. Feel free to hit me up um, on Facebook or text me or something. Um, so, coming from an understanding that like humans and animals are both created with their own individual purposes, but I had someone ask me the other day, like, how could I say that animals and humans have different purposes, and like, why do we think animals are the 
Yeah. Uh, I think if I'm trying to argue from the Bible, I'd go to Genesis 1. So for those of you who couldn't hear, the question was, how do we know that animals and humans have different purposes? Um, uh, how do we know that uh, people are above animals? Basically, is that the question? Okay. So I think I'd go to Genesis 1, where it says that God makes animals. Um, and I think, uh, especially because we have a lot of people that care very deeply about their animals. Um, people that care about animal rights and things like that. And I think we can support that. We should support that. Um, by looking at Genesis 1 and saying, well, God made the animals, and then he said, that's good. And then he made these animals, and he said, that's good. Um, and then he takes a step back, and he makes something that is in his image. And none of the other things are said to be in his image. They're just made. But then humanity, Adam and Eve, are made in his image, in his likeness. And he tells them to rule the earth, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says they're to rule the earth. That's not like, um, a lot of people think it's like raping the planet. That's not the idea there. The idea is of a, of a gentle, careful stewardship um, of God's green earth uh, that would include the animals. And so in Genesis 2, God brings the animals to Adam for him to name them, which in ancient Near Eastern cultures would have been a way to demonstrate that Adam has authority over them. So because he has been made, he's like the vice president, and all humanity is like the vice president. We represent uh, just like Vice President Pence represents President Trump, um, Vice President Biden represented President Obama. Uh, you really have no authority in and of yourself. You're just like representing somebody else. And so that's how humanity is when God says we're made in God's image. He puts us on the earth and he gives us a kingly function to rule the earth on his behalf. Uh, but we're like the vice president representing the king. Um, and so we're over everything. Um, because we uniquely have a God consciousness. Um, like, dogs are awesome. Cats are, well, I'm allergic to cats, so I don't think they're awesome. <laughs> Sorry if you like them. Um, a lot of animals are awesome, but they don't have a God consciousness. They're not self-aware in the sense of reflecting upon God. That's a great question. Maybe one more? Phil. Popular like 100 years ago called the gap theory 
And the idea was that God made everything in Genesis 1, and then in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, um, there was like a massive rebellion. Humanity rebelled against God. That's when the Satan and the angels fell, and so God wiped everybody out, and then and everything was formless and void, and it was just chaotic, and so then kind of God starts over in Genesis 1-2. Um, so it's, it's, it's reading a whole lot into something that's not there in between two verses. Um, and I think Selhammer's view can tiptoe up to that. It doesn't do it to the same extent. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly not an expert on Selhammer's view. Um, I think that my understanding of the way that Hebrew narrative works, I would struggle to accept that. Um, I would struggle to accept that. Uh, I think it's a straightforward Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2, the way that the, the verses are connected together, especially in Hebrew, um, which is what it was originally written in. Um, I hesitate to say that because there are people that read Hebrew that would be like, no, I disagree with you. Um, but that is, that's my interpretation. I think that, uh, so I would, I would not agree with Selhammer's view, even though I respect him as a scholar. Which goes back to my earlier point, that we can have unity without uniformity. We don't all have to agree on this, okay? Now we presented it because we felt like it was important because the issue of origins and the issue of evolution is the elephant in the room as we preach through Genesis. Um, and so we don't want everyone to be like, well, yeah, I mean, I want to believe in Adam and Eve, but, and then go home and, and just say, well, I either ha I have to throw my, um, I have to throw reason out the window if I'm going to believe in God. And we want you to understand you don't have to throw reason out the window to believe in God. God is a reasonable God. If you arrive at a different conclusion than I do, if you if you have Salehammer's view or, or the view that, that Sean was asking about, that many people hold that each day of the creation is a billion years or so, I'm not going to get bent out of shape over that. I don't think that's the right view. Um, but there's, there's bigger things, more important things to, uh, to argue about. Let me wrap it up with, I want to show you one slide. Uh, the last slide. Um, so here's where I want to make my final point, and then we can continue the conversation um, at Missional Families. We can continue the conversation here throughout the weeks to come. So there was this uh, ancient Near Eastern people called the Hittites. The Hittites are mentioned all over the Old Testament. Um, there's only one problem, that most uh, non-Christian historians and archaeologists said for long, long time, they said, oh, there's no such thing as the Hittites. There's not a single shred of archaeological or historical evidence proving that the Hittites were ever a real people. And they made fun of Christians, and they said, Christians are wrong, because they believe a book that is filled with references to a people that never existed. So, you could go one of two routes when faced with a dilemma like that. You could say, well, Okay, so we're going to reinterpret every verse in the Bible that references the Hittites, and we're going to try to come up with an alternative explanation. Some people could do that. Others said, and this is what I'm advocating for here as it relates to the theory of evolution, is to say, I'm not sure I have all the answers scientifically. I don't know how it all works out. But I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that the Bible is true. And this is my stand. This is what I believe. And I'm going to accept it, trusting that the science is eventually going to be worked out in God's favor. So after like 100 years of criticizing the Bible and making fun of Christians who believed in the Hittites, archaeologists discovered this. The uh, capital city of the ancient Hittite empire. So now you can get your PhD in Hittite studies um, from totally secular universities. There are books written about it. There are dissertations about it. 
Um, it's a real, legit thing. And suddenly all the Christians who for decades or hundreds of years were like, well, we don't know how to prove the Hittites are true, but we know they are. I think God rewards their faith because they took a stand when it wasn't easy. I don't have every explanation for science and faith. I don't, I don't know about cosmic background radiation. They talk about this thing called redshift and how it supposedly proves something. And, and I don't really have a good answer for that. But I know that the Hittites were real. When secular science, history, archaeology, those are sciences, said that God was wrong. There's other examples. There's like Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Um, I won't go into that, but it's a fascinating story. Maybe I'll tell your missional family leader. We can talk about it in group. But every time, time and time and time again, God has been proven right. So I have no doubts that he will be proven right on this. Maybe in history, or maybe at the kingdom. Maybe when Jesus comes back, that's when we're going to understand it all. So I'm not arguing that we can necessarily prove everything that I'm saying. Um, I don't think that we can. And what I don't want us to do is be combative and argumentative with people who disagree with us, whether they're in the faith or especially if they're outside the faith. If somebody's outside the faith and they don't believe in creation, like, don't get into an argument about blood clotting with them. Like, show them love, show them Jesus. If you have a chance to talk about the, the reasonableness of the faith and you get to mention blood clotting, cool. Um, but let's not go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people and nobody's one to faith through an argument. They're one to faith through loving relationships, through showing people that even though we don't have all of the answers, our faith is a plausible and reasonable explanation for our world. So, I believe in the Hittites. Not because we found their city, but because they're in the Bible. I believe in a creator God, not because science has proved him, but because it's in the Bible. I know in our 21st century world that can sound naive and simplistic, but it is what I believe. And I'm willing to stake my entire life, stake everything upon it. And I'd encourage you that if you're a follower of Jesus, that that is the path that we follow. It might mean ridicule. It might mean that we have to sacrifice some respectability in some circles, but we bear it well because Jesus was disrespected for us. And we love him. If we're in the fields of science, we search for answers. Maybe we find them. Maybe we don't. But we keep coming back to the fact that God is good, and he is our creator, and we can trust him. And he'll show us all the answers one day. Because the arc of history is long, Martin Luther King said, but it always bends towards justice. It bends towards God's coming kingdom. Okay? So let's pray. Then keep talking, we can.